Salvation by faith alone is a great way to say it. Kind of those two. Yeah, that's it. Uh, the general idea again is uh, what I said was spirit, comma, not law. So it, it is by the spirit that we uh, walk the Christian walk, and the law is no longer uh, something that we have to wrestle with. Now, later on, in a, in a different book, we'll find out that the law doesn't go away, but it's Christ actually fulfills the law in us when we walk according to the Spirit. But yeah, that's the message for Galatians. Uh, Colossians, in three words, Christ, not ritual. Christ, not ritual. Well, you can see that idea is very parallel, isn't it? Same kind of idea. And uh, uh, we could also say it this way, in Christ alone is the message of Colossians in three words. Okay, so here we go. Uh, writing to the church at Colossae. And I'm, again, I'm in the New Living Translation, and that is because we are looking for the forest. So we want a translation that's going to be a dynamic translation. In other words, one that's going to give us uh, an easy to read. We just want to feel the sense of the letter. Uh, we are not very interested in getting down uh, to the tree level. If we decide to get to the tree level, which we will, <laughs> uh, we will change translations and you'll see that in a minute. But here we go. Colossians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Short but sweet uh, introduction there, uh, initial greeting. We get into really the body of the letter here, but it's still a... Um, addressing the church and, and it's still kind of introductory. He's just getting his feet wet here and he's, and he's wanting to tell the church that they're really pleased that they are uh, on the wagon of uh, what they would say back in the day actually is on the way. They are part of the way. Okay, so here we go. Verse 3, we always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Now this is a, this is a tree right here, but I got to stop. <laughs> it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives. If you're not, if your life is not changed, 
you are not walking the gospel. And I'm going to harp on this over and over and over because when I got this revelation, it was like a ton of bricks. We do not simply uh, pray a little simple prayer, decide to accept Jesus, and then just go on the rest of our lives as if really there's no difference except I just have a not guilty verdict now. Uh, that is not the gospel. The gospel is it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Your life should change. So if your life is not changing, let's say uh, in a room like this, I would imagine we had several people who uh, prayed the sinner's prayer. You know, when they were eight years old. And, okay, did your life change? Well. As a, as a child and growing up, I'm sure there were a lot of ups and downs. This is a this story that's very typical for this college and this atmosphere. Raised in a Christian home. Not, maybe not all of you were, but it's a typical story for where we are. Well, if your life hasn't changed, think about since you came to college. Are you pursuing the Lord or are you just naming His name? It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Okay. Verse 7. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant and He is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you the complete knowledge of His will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. Paul is interested in our lives producing good fruit. We'll talk more about what that is later. Well, we actually talked about it last week, didn't we? The fruit of the Spirit is. And there, there, there were those things. Uh, we pray also, verse 11, that you will be strengthened with all His glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So endurance, patience, and joy. We have a little abridged list here of some of the fruit of the Spirit there. We'll see that in Paul. We'll get a little sampling of... See that Galatians 5 has the, the kind of the full list, if you will. The nine uh, multifaceted fruit of the Spirit, but we've got three of them right here. Always thanking the Father, verse 12, He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light, for He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now we get the, the main piece that we probably think of when we think of Colossians 1, and probably Colossians in general, is this piece where the high Christology is presented. That Jesus is fully divine and uh, he, He's the man. Okay, So verse 15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything that was created, or before anything was created, and is supreme over all creation. Now, the New, the New Living Translation actually fails us at this point because we want to see a tree right here. There's a word 
that the New Living Translation smooths out a little bit, and it, I understand why they did it, and it makes sense. He is supreme over all creation, which is really the feel of what they're going for. But there's a word here, and I'm going to switch over to the Christian Standard Bible to get this word. The real word there in verse 15 is the firstborn over all creation. Well, you probably see why the New Living didn't use that because we're, 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 we're marketing this to a, a, a probably more of a younger Christian, maybe somebody that might not understand. And this word firstborn might be confusing. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Well, He obviously was not the first human that was born. So Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? He wasn't the first man to be born, so that doesn't make sense. So it's not talking about His humanness. But then we say, oh, well, He's the firstborn, and and that's referring to His divinity. Well, that could cause us a problem because we know that Jesus, the Son, is eternal. He was not born. He did not come from anywhere. Jesus is God. He is fully divine. We'll see that in a minute. And so, okay, firstborn. This is, this is a weird word. What's the deal? Firstborn simply refers to uh, the firstborn. In the culture of the Old Testament, let's say, if you remember back to Abraham uh, who had uh, Ishmael and he had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and he had Esau, right? Esau was the firstborn. Uh, And so what did that entail? He got the birthright and he got the blessing. And Jacob stole both of them, right? But, But the firstborn had the rights to the birthright and the blessing. In other words, there was an extra level of uh, favor on that firstborn. And so what we're talking about is Jesus is the firstborn. It doesn't mean He was born. He was born in the natural. He was not born in His divinity. He didn't come from anywhere. He always has been. But the firstborn simply means that He is the most highly favored the, the, the one who receives the blessing and the birthright, the, the one who has the uh, most uh, say in the matter among a group of brethren, which is us. How many sons of, of God are there? There's a, there's a bunch of sons of God. How many begotten sons of God? One. Same principle. He is the only begotten son, meaning that He is the only one, he, he is the Son who is the type of Son who is of the Father, of the same essence as the Father. We are not of the same essence as the Father. But we are His sons, we are His adopted sons, but there's a different status there, which should be obvious. But He is the firstborn over all creation. I just want to make sure you understand that word firstborn and what it doesn't mean. Because what it doesn't mean is heresy. Okay, Going on, verse 16, For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things have been created through Him and for Him. (coughs) He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So here's this word firstborn again. Again, it doesn't mean you really mean that he was born, but it means that he is the first and he is the one with the highest status of those who are raised from the dead. Again, when you see that word firstborn, the connotation is that there's a group of brethren. So, if he's the firstborn from the dead, that means he rose from the dead first. And because he did, uh, we will rise from the dead. So, it's a package deal, but he's the first, and he has the status in that. So that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased, verse 19, to have all of his fullness dwell in Him. Another way to say that is Jesus is fully divine. He is fully God and fully man, but He is fully divine. All His fullness dwelled in Him. And through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Yeah, go ahead. What would He have to reconcile as from heaven? Say again? That verse said, reconciling everything to Himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. What would, what would you think is thing to reconcile from heaven? I'm not sure. Let me get back to you. That's a tree. <laughs> Alright. Verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now He has reconciled you by His physical body through His death to present you holy faultless and blameless before Him. Wait a minute. He did all this stuff. He died a torturous death. He went through all this. He First of all, He came down from heaven to earth. Very humbling. He died. He was tortured. Why? To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. Wait, that's why he did that? I thought it was just so I could be quote-unquote saved and go to heaven and have a nice eternity. Well, it was that too. That's part of it. That's not all of it. And again, I I get the sense in the church today that we think that that's the game. Going to heaven. It's part of the game. But this is... The reason why He did this was to present us holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. That does not mean that we are to be not those things. Unholy, with fault, with blame. In other words, we're supposed to live right. If indeed, verse 23, you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted... Wait a minute, if... He did all this and He's going to present us blameless and holy if... You remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 
Uh, Baptists in particular, and some other people, have a, a theological, theological point called perseverance of the saints. It's the P of TULIP, right? And as one person told me one time, every good Baptist is at least at one point Calvinist. Okay. <laughs> and so, perseverance of the saints. Now, I'm not going to argue perseverance in the saints. But here's, here's what... If, if perseverance of the saints... Meaning, which, which a lot of people interpret that once saved, always saved. Whatever the case, it can't be this. Look, if indeed you remain, it's remaining. So there's a remaining. In other words, if you make a decision for Christ, quote unquote, if you pray the sinner's prayer and you mean what you say, you mean what you prayed, as people like to give as an altar call, which I have no problem with that. Because if you mean what you are praying, then you will live a life that's pleasing to Him and you will submit to His Lordship and He will, he will rule your life and He will make you holy as you look at Him. We'll get more into that later. But you've got to remain. It's not a question of you know, walking down the aisle and then going on and doing something, some other something. You must remain. Okay, the gospel, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Okay, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become a servant, according Paul's in prison, by the way, uh, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal is to have everybody be presented mature in Christ. Jesus' goal in dying was to have everybody uh, holy and faultless and blameless. Paul's goal uh, we're going to go to the next level. We're going to get everybody mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. Colossians is four chapters. And each chapter can basically be summed up in, on its own. So we can have four little sec sectors to our forest. Okay, Chapter 1 was what? High Christology. Jesus is fully God. He's it. I don't need anything else. Okay, And the reason why he's getting so much into that and, 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 and proclaiming the all-sufficiency of Christ, we find that out in chapter 2. We find out the problem. Why Paul is even writing the letter. Here we go. For this is the beginning of chapter 2. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you. For those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We talked last week about what we have. The creator of the universe is our daddy. What I mean, how much we have, the riches that we have, and again, we're not talking about material things per se, but the the uh, 
beyond anything we can imagine that is available as sons of God. And this is kind of echoing that. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <coughs> now, here's why he's talking about this. I am saying this, verse 4, so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. <laughs> For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. So, so then, just as you, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, being rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, he said a couple things here. First, in verse 4, he said, I don't, I'm saying this so that nobody will deceive you with arguments. People will come and try to talk to you, talk you into this, that, or the other that does not line up with Scripture. And he's writing this letter to, to make sure that you don't fall for that stuff. Because Christ is all-sufficient. And then down a couple verses later, he has the same type of thought. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. <clears throat> so again, philosophy, arguments, human tradition, the elements of the world. This is, this is basically referring to uh, there's a culture in Colossae, a pagan culture of kind of an angel cult type of thing. These are kind of deities that are uh, false deities. Okay? Uh, rather than Christ. Because we don't need all that because Christ is all sufficient. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Therefore, we don't need all these other things. So it's Christ, not ritual. We can say it's Christ, not philosophy. It's Christ, not human tradition. It's Christ, not the elements of the world. Right? And you who you have been filled by Him, who is the head over every ruler and authority, verse 11, you were also circumcised in Him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. In other words, your circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. It's done directly by God in a spiritual way, not in a physical way. Okay? You are also circumcised... Uh, I just read that. Verse 12, when you were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. I'll probably say this again when we get to uh, Romans, which will probably be next year. So I'll go ahead and say it now. You were, you were uh, buried with Him in baptism, and, but you were raised also with Him. So, salvation, and specifically the baptism that is the symbolism of that, we're buried with Him and we're raised with Him. The church today only understands the first one. And I'm going back to my harping point. I get saved. What does that mean? I have a not guilty verdict. Justification. The, world, the church world today thinks that salvation and justification are one and the same thing. No. Justification is only a part of salvation. It is only a part of the greater whole picture. And so when we are buried, in other words, we're dead, and because of His death, what happens? We 
get the not guilty verdict. In other words, we get justification. Because he died, we get a not guilty verdict, justification. But because he was raised to life, and because we are raised to life with him, <coughs> in Romans he says, raised to newness of life. See, there's the key. Newness of life. In other words, it's a change. I'm a changed person. You have to be a changed person. Otherwise, you are not on the right boat. Your idea of the gospel is flawed if you are not changing. Now, that's a process. Sanctification is a process. But you are changing. And if you're not changing, you need to examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13.5, to see if you're even in the faith. See? If, if, if you said, how do you know you're saved? I would give you two things. I would say two things. Number one, I look at Him. And number two, I bear fruit. Now, looking at Him is in the present tense. It's a constant looking at Him. Number two is in the... It becomes in the past tense because you don't really see the fruit until you get down the road a year. So every year, you look back and you say, have I grown? Or am I the same? Or am I worse? You see, over time... You will bear fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, you need to go to the Lord and say, what's the deal here, Lord? Because you're supposed to bear fruit in me. And so, therefore, I go back to what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? I want to be obedient and make sure that I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing as far as having the right heart posture. He does the work, but i got to look at Him. And if I'm not bearing fruit, there's some disconnect somewhere along the way. Now, I got a little off topic there, but not really. Uh, let me see if I can find where I was. Buried with yeah, baptism and also raised. Buried and raised. So newness of life, in other words, there's a change. There's an empowerment to overcome sin. That's Romans 6. Now, verse 13, When you were dead in your trespasses and in the un- uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. The work really is finished. The work really is finished. At no point do we try to go back and work the work. The work is done. It's simply a... It's simply a, a, a process and, and a, a waiting and, and a, uh, a lifestyle of letting it seep into you. The work that's already done. It has to seep into you. That's sanctification. Alright. Verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him. Uh, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Okay, so these are referring to more of the... This is just like Galatians. This is uh, the Judaizers. This is going to be some things... Hey, we're going to add some parts of the law. Some of the traditions of man. He's saying, don't even mess with all that. That's all taken care of, why would you go back to that? These are a shadow, verse 17, of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices. That means 
uh, basically like beating yourself up. So I literally hurt myself and wound myself as a way of um, teaching myself a lesson. Um, so I sin, and then what do I do? I, I punish myself for my sin. Uh, or, you know, I, I, uh, I, I kind of keep myself in pain so that uh, I have uh, that kind of in front of me and I, I'm thinking about the pain so that I don't uh, sin. Or I'm thinking about the pain even just to identify with Christ. And he's saying none of that stuff is what we're supposed to be doing. Also, we're not supposed to be worshiping angels, verse 18. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons. Well, we're getting into some harder to understand things. Let's go back to the living translate. Okay, new living. <laughs> Let's look at this. Don't let verse 18, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial and, and the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for He holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments. It grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they they require strong devotion pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Translation, you can't do it on your own. It, uh, it doesn't matter if you beat yourself up every day. You're still not going to get yourself over the hump of achieving righteousness in your own self. Even to the point of physically harming yourself, it's still not going to help you. So what is going to help you? Ah, well, that's Colossians 3. Since you have been raised in new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Look at what he just said there. Don't beat yourself up. Don't, don't do all these things that, uh, where you're trying to train yourself to be righteous or work righteousness in yourself. That's not going to help you. What is going to help you is setting your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. In verse 2, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Now, I've got to have my regular old translation for that, so I'm going to go to New King James. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Set your mind on things above, Colossians 3.2, not on things on the earth. Now, I think this is my life verse. I say I think that because I just think it is. Well, but it just kind of struck me over the past couple years that this is pretty good life first. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. Is that not the problem with the church today? One of the major problems. We've got our focus on all this stuff in the world. And it's not helping us one iota. You, I said a second ago, ask me how I know I'm saved, and I'll tell you, number one, look, I look at Him. That's what I'm talking about right there. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above. See, when we 
train ourselves to focus on Him. He takes care of the rest. Again, the work is finished. All I do is keep my sights on Him. I never... If if you want to beat sin, step one, don't look at the sin. Okay? Uh, Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking on water. That's pretty legit. He goes down. Why? He started looking at himself and the world and not Jesus. As soon as he looked up, he was back up. See? He does the work in us, but you got to look at it. Well, what does that mean? It means setting your mind. Setting. Now, look, there are, the work is finished. In other words, there are things that God has done that only He can do, and it's not our job to do them. But there are jobs that we are supposed to do. It doesn't say allow Him to set your mind. It says set your mind. You have to do it. I do not buy into this thing that we don't do anything. Yes, God does everything in terms of He does everything that is efficacious. But it doesn't mean we don't do anything. That's silly. That's robot nonsense. We're not robots. What we do is set our mind on Him and then He takes care of the rest. That's a pretty good deal. That's why they call it good news. For you die, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Now watch this. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. I had a student the other day ask me about the wrath of God. He said, Dr. Miller, I heard that you guys sing about the wrath of God at church and you feel like we should sing about the wrath of God. I said, yeah, we should sing about it. We should preach on it. It's a part of who God is. And here's the thing. It's not just for... The wrath of God is not just reserved for quote-unquote sinners, quote-unquote, in the world. How do I know this? Because he's writing this letter to the church! Put to death these things. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He's talking to them, the church. If you do these things, you're not going to make it. I don't care who, how many times you raise your hand, and I don't care how many times you walk down the aisle. Verse 8, you yourselves are to... You yourselves. I'm allowing God to... No. You yourselves are to put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Okay? He's talking to the church, and he's saying, therefore, get rid of all this stuff. Sin is not part of the program, saints, is what he's saying. Let's back up. What is the message of Colossians? Number one, Jesus is fully God. He is all that there is. We don't need anything extra. And I'm telling you that because I've heard that there's people coming in, chapter 2, and saying that you need this, that, and the other. In other words, there's arguments, there's vain deceits, there's uh, uh, rituals, there's all these things that are trying to trick you into thinking that there's something other that's needed that's other than Jesus. And no, that's not the case because Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in Him. He is all we need, period. So don't try to do it yourself by beating yourself up. But instead, here's the solution. Set your mind on the things above. And if you do that, He will take care of the work of cleaning you up. Progressive sanctification. You've died. You're not allowed to sin anymore. Therefore, put to death these things. See, this comes back over and over and over in Paul. Here's my theology. Therefore, stop sinning. It's in half the letters at least. I don't know how we've missed this. The Gospel is good news. Because it says that He did what I couldn't do, which is to save me from my sin and to to uh, give me power over sin. So he gives me, he erases the guilt of sin and he gives me power over sin. But it's not without a cost. I don't earn it, but there is a cost. The rich young ruler, you've done everything right, sell everything you have. No, I can't do that. Wasn't willing to pay the cost. You can't earn it. But there is a cost. And this is part of the cost. The cost is this. Total surrender and complete submission to the Lordship of Christ. Period. If you don't have that, that's not, if that's not part of your gospel, you got the wrong gospel. And what happens if we do sin, by the way? This is a different, different epistle, but what happens if we do sin? If, by the way, if we sin. Not when. If we sin. He's faithful and just. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every time, every time, if you sin, if you are truly repentant, you're sorry for your sin and you desire to change, and you get on your face and you say, Lord, I, I, I wish I had not done that thing. Help me. Every time, He'll do it. That you cannot, the mercy of God is, you can't outlast it. But you do have to be postured for it. You can't just assume it's there. It's only there if you posture yourself for it. Okay? So don't, don't let anything that I've said 
uh, get you off of the idea that the mercy of God is everlasting and you can always come back. But it's, it's a hard thing. It's a posture of the heart that allows you to come back because he sees that and he says, yes, you have humbled yourself uh, just like the, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Have mercy on me a sinner. You got it. Every time. Every time. But you can't trick yourself or deceive yourself into thinking that, oh, well, I'm just going to uh, you know, ask for mercy later. And careful. <clears throat> now, these are all the things we weren't supposed to do. Verse 12, we get all the things we are supposed to do. The first one I call the to-don't list. This is the to-do list. Here we go. Verse 12, Therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender... Put on. See, we put off a while ago. Put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you almost also must do. We've got to forgive people. That's a non-negotiable. People think that's just like... No, it's a non-negotiable. Because if you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And, and that's not to say that whatever was done to you was not terrible. And it's not to justify or say that the, the, uh, the, the person is let off the hook or anything like that. It's your posture of forgiving them regardless of what the thing was, what, even if it was a terrible thing. We must forgive Okay, verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. Ooh, we're in a, we're in a weird translation again. Mm-hmm. But basically it's saying, don't, don't just... Uh, well, let's just go to the NLT again and you'll know exactly what it means. <coughs> Slaves, obey your earthly masters masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely. Of course, today we can apply this to the workplace or you know, whatever. Uh, don't just, you know, you're on your phone at work and the boss comes around and you put the phone in your pocket. Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> not just when they're watching you. Okay, serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will pay back for the wrong you have done for God has no favorites. Wow. Yes, ma'am. What do you say to the people who struggle with the concept of codependence and people pleasing with 22? Try to please them all the time. What do I say to a person who tries to please people all the time? Yeah, so I struggle with codependence. Yeah, you do, that you try to please people all the time? Um, so, yeah, don't do that. Uh, but also, there, so there's a, there's a fine line here because we're supposed to give people preferential treatment. 
So we're supposed to love others and prefer others to self. That's what love is, preferring others to self. So I think we can go a long way toward uh, being everything we can be to those other people. Um, but trying to please others is a different thing, though, because there's a, there's a piece of the fear of man in there. If we're trying to please everybody, uh, we're doing that because we want them... Well, maybe you're doing it because you want them to like you. I don't know. But if it's because we want them to like us or something like that, there's a fear of man involved there, and that's not of God. So, so yes, we try to do everything we can to help people and, and live our lives with other people in mind. Uh, but no, we do not um, uh, just try to please people. We try to please God. We try to please God. And when we please, when we are trying to please God, we will be doing things for other people. Um, we can come back to that if you if you like. Um, leave that there for now. Okay, now, I'm not going to read all of chapter 4. <coughs> but let me just get the beginning here so that we can finish this thought out. So, masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, verse 2, with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray, pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak. Uh, verse 5, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Verse 6, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so you will have the right response for everyone. So all the way through verse 6, you notice, from chapter 4, verse 6, going back all the way through, verse, uh, through chapter 3, Starting at therefore. Chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore. This is all the practical. These are the to-do to list and the don't list. So basically all of chapter 3 and just a little bit at the beginning of chapter 4. This is the practical. This is the therefore. So again, recapping. The, the rest of chapter 4, by the way, is just greeting the people and all that stuff. Okay, That's not the forest. Chapter 1. Jesus is the man. He's fully divine. We don't need anything else. I'm telling you that because, chapter 2, I found out that there's people trying to deceive you into thinking that He's not the only thing we need. So that's why I'm writing this letter. And you should, in order to do and be everything you need to be, don't even think about getting into... uh, Practices such as uh, beating yourself up or things like that. There's no way that you can achieve your own righteousness. End of chapter 2. The way to achieve righteousness, beginning of chapter 3, is to set your mind on Him. And He does the work in you. Now having said all of that theology, stop sinning and start living with the fruit of the Spirit. That's the message of Colossians. Sir? Um, I don't know. Do you think that the reason why people are sinning because they don't believe they can conquer sin? Because they think they're human? I think that, so the question is why do people not conquer sin? Well, I think like, well, this is what I think, but I prefer, like, I'm wondering if you agree, like, do you think like the reason why people always fear to come back to sin because they believe like, oh, because I'm human, I will sin. But they forget that they have the power not to. Yeah, and I don't think they forgot. I don't think they ever knew. Because it's not taught. 
that the Holy Spirit empowers you to overcome sin. So I would say a couple of things. There are numbers of reasons why we would sin and continue to sin and not get victory over that. Number one is we're not setting our mind on Him. We're setting our mind... In some cases, we're setting our mind on the sin, like, oh, I've got to stop this. That's setting your mind on yourself and your sin and your situation, not setting it on Him. In other cases, we're setting it on everything else. Facebook and whatever. In other words, we're not in tune with Him. And if we're not seeking Him and if we're not setting our minds on Him, He's not doing it. You're not growing. He's not doing any work in you. So you're not getting any better. Um, if you want to uh, overcome sin... There, there's a, there's a, this is a two-part plan here, but the, the main part is setting your mind on Him. I got a sinus infection. I just went on the online doctor before I came over here. <laughs> Tomorrow I'm going to pick up a, a prescription. A prescription for an antibiotic. If I didn't do the antibiotic, I wouldn't get better. Because the antibiotic kills that thing. But meanwhile, I'm going to take a Mucinex when I get home. Right? And what's that going to do? It's going to treat the what? Symptom. Okay? Pick your sin problem, whatever it is. Okay, I have a problem with X. Well, treat the symptom by not allowing yourself, not, not, not allowing yourself to have access to whatever that thing is. So I can, I can make, this is called accountability. I can make, uh, 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 I can fence myself in and keep myself away from the temptation of whatever that thing is. And whatever, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm doing, I can, I can take something for the symptom. But that's never going to, that's not going to eradicate the problem. The only way to eradicate the problem is by taking the antibiotic. The antibiotic is Jesus. Okay? So you set your mind on the things above. In other words, you set your mind on the Lord. That's taking your antibiotic. He does the work. He kills the stuff. Period. It's not going to get killed any other way. But while the antibiotic is working, you're treating the symptoms by trying to to make sure that you have those things uh, kind of warded off, those temptations. Okay? If you're an alcoholic, don't go to a bar. Simple, right? That kind of a thing, right? Now, not going to the bar is not going to cure you of alcoholism. Jesus cures you of alcoholism. You see what I mean? Okay. All right. I think uh, that'll be it.